Welcome to the Prodigal and the Priest podcast, a podcast about faith, sports, and two friends from different cultures. Here are your hosts, Joey Scansella and Father Paul Bechter. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Prodigal and the Priest and me. This is our question edition of the podcast where Father Paul and myself get to answer questions, get to discuss things, get to make fun of one another, all of those fun things mm. for 2021. How you doing? Doing good, man. Good. I'm excited. I'm ready to go. You ready? Yeah. All right, let's start let's it off. This. Question one comes from Nicole. What do you all think about loyalty in sports? For example, in football and baseball, they tend to keep people a long time. But in this era, especially of basketball, mm -hmm. seems to have no allegiance. What are your all's thoughts? Mercenaries. <laughs> Sorry, finish the question. <laughs> no, that's it. What are your all's thoughts? I mean, a, a great, I mean, look at the example of James Harden that we just had. Yeah. Brooklyn Net tearing it up. Yeah. But just, you know, kind of went on strike. Yeah. In Houston. You just say, I don't want to. Could you imagine Kawhi kind of. I think Kawhi kind of started that. I know that LeBron, with his decision, like really ushered in a new era of power for the players to choose where they wanted to, to go play right. in the NBA. Um, but I think that Kawhi basically sitting out a year with this like quad injury, which was sort of real, but also kind of... Yeah, so yeah. if those don't know what we're talking about, back when Kawhi Leonard played for the San Antonio Spurs, there was this whole like debate: did he was he injured? Was he not? And you know, and some people say he just didn't want to get hurt and play. He wanted to play somewhere else, so he mm -hmm. just didn't want to play anymore. Um, it is interesting, yeah, because you really have two situations. At least the LeBron one, it's like he finished his contract, right? Right. Right now, though, you have the James Harden situation, for those listeners who don't know, is this guy who's played for the Houston Rockets, and he pretty much just threw a 35-year-old temper tantrum and said, I'm not playing. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to get out of shape. I'm going <laughs> to, like, yeah. Yeah. literally. I'm going to sabotage this team until you get rid of me. And, like, he, just the power structure of the NBA, like, he has the power to do that, uh, which is kind of an amazing thing. So... I've heard a, a bunch of different takes on this stuff. My my gut reaction is I like loyalty towards teams. Uh, yes. Especially uh, like smaller market teams. Um, I know that there are good reasons to go to L.A. and stuff uh, for players and for, you know, marketing and everything. Like I, I get all that, but like the thought that, you know, that Luka Doncic for the Mavs, right, uh, could just could sign a supermax contract with the Mavs at some point, and then just decide he doesn't want to be here anymore because he wants to be somewhere where you know, say he's very afraid of tornadoes or something, <laughs> and he wants to move to Earthquake Land instead, right? Um, like it just <laughs> it just seems like you're turning your back. That on, was the best the example. <laughs> Not just he wanted uh, to play somewhere else, but he's afraid of tornadoes and right. wants to move to Earth. And, and my read so far on Luca is like he seems kind of like a Dirk. Uh, I hope. I, I, mean, I sure hope. Maybe it's wishful thinking, but like he seems really happy here. And I like as far as basketball goes, I want mm -hmm. more than anything for him to be happy and stay here because 
incredible player and brings so much to the team. And Yeah, and there's something to be said that there's a reason people love Dirk so much. And I think yeah. it's that, not that if he didn't, like if he would have gone to the Lakers, people in LA would have loved him for a year or two. But there was something that like just, you know, that whole Mavs fan for life, you know? And yeah. I like um, the hometown roots thing, even if, you know, even if it's not your hometown per se. I mean, as much Germany, shade as I throw at him for his playing career, I respect Tony Romo for retiring as a Cowboy. Because he could have probably, I mean, don't get me wrong, his back was about to break and he was about to be crippled for like life. Why would and, you throw shade at Tony for his playing well, career? <laughs> I'm not going to walk into that ambush. All I'm going to say is people make it like he was Dan Marino and he was not, okay? So, um, but you know what I mean? I, I had respect for him being like, I think he knew, hey, I've gained the respect of Cowboys fan. Like, I want to end as a Cowboy. Yeah. I think there was some so, something valuable there about his allegiance. There is a flip side to this, which which I can see. Uh, like, okay, you know, these are the guys that everyone's there to watch. Shouldn't they have more power and say in where they're going? Um, and in basketball, they're just starting to to have that. But in other sports, like, you can't do this in the same way a little bit in football now right mm-hmm. the the sean watson the sean right? watson yeah um like we're starting to see stuff like that trickle down from basketball to other sports but should that be kind of the norm that players have a lot more say because otherwise it turns into you know they're sort of being used by this big corporation kind of thing and like i can i can kind of see that mm-hmm. um but the gut for me is like loyalty to your team yeah, uh, I don't know what team sports are about if you don't have that even on this like superstar pro level. I mean, but flip it to the church, and I'm not going to ask you for any names, but could you imagine like just being mad that you were assigned to St. Anne's and throwing kind of a temper tantrum that I'm Ooh. I don't want to be here. Yeah, and have the bishop be like, I'm unhappy that I'm here. I'm sure it's happened. I'm sure of it, <laughs> and I don't know it for a fact. But you gotta <laughs> but mention. Sure it. But I'm sure of it, <laughs> and I will say no more. But right, that like you're yeah. just so kind of. No, that's an interesting thing. So like, a different diocese will do different things. Different bishops will will handle personnel moves in different ways, uh, assignments and stuff. Um, so far, uh, here at Dallas, the way it has looked has been. Kind of like a, we're thinking this, what do you think? And so, like, you know. So you get some input. Like, I felt like I had input. I don't know (laughs) if if I was like. Every other priest is like, wait, what? He got to. (laughs) No, it felt like input, but but it it wasn't where do you want to go? It was, we're thinking here, what do you think? Uh, do you have any objections or, and I'm sure that they would have heard me out and maybe been like, that's not a reasonable objection. What's wrong with you? Um. But if I had, you know, if they assigned me to somewhere that was primarily Spanish speaking and I was like, I'm just not good enough at Spanish to be the only priest at this parish. Like, right. I, I think yeah, they would valid. hear that. Or yeah. or if you're like, you know, my my health isn't isn't what it seems and it's more fragile and I think that place is too big. Like, yeah, I, I think I think it's in everyone's best interest to hear that. Um, True. So 
So yeah, but if I <laughs> if they were like, you are being assigned here, no input, and then I threw a temp- temper tantrum and went on like strike. Yeah, like sabbatical. And, you know, and like, just got and really fat in protest. <laughs> <laughs> you just pulled a James Harden towards the like, bishop. Like, You're like, go ahead, move, move me. They'd be like, great. You're no I longer. I don't know a priest. what they would. Yeah, I don't know what they would do, but I doubt that they would just you know capitulate to my every demand. And that's why I think churches <laughs> should have a draft. <laughs> With the second pick overall, we select wait, this wait. priest who, as who our the parish gets to gets to choose, you know. I mean, probably the youth minister. Yeah, that I mean, makes, it sense. makes the sense. Okay, next question. Um thank you, Nicole. Appreciate your question. Thor, Father Paul. Yes. I'm gonna say slash Joey, even though it wasn't mentioned. Uh Father Paul, have you ever done or witnessed an exorcism as mm. well? Could you give some insight into what they actually are versus what they are perceived to be? Yeah. Um, I'm a, I'm going to, boom, hot take. Yes, you have. Because during the RCIA scrutinies, mm. those are minor exorcisms. That's true. Little loophole. Yeah. But okay. Minor Just exorcisms. There's minor exorcisms involved in the baptismal rite. Exactly. Was, Just okay, wanted to so toss those out yes, that I'm like, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Loopholes. Love them. Yeah, okay. Major exorcisms I've not been a part of. Yeah. So take it two steps seen. at a time. You ever witness or been a part of major exorcism? No. No. As well, could you give some insight? So it's not like. Let's just put it out on the table. It's not like watching like the exorcism of Emily Rose. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, everything I've heard is that it's not, it, it makes sense. Like you want to make a movie interesting or captivating or terrifying or whatever. Um, mm. And reality is different. Um, as far as I understand, like the whole thing behind exorcisms is you receiving this delegation uh, from the bishop to speak authoritatively um, to cast out these demons. And so it's, it's a conjunction of like who you are as a priest, um, uh, conform to Christ as, um, as, as high priest and receiving the, uh, authority of the bishop, um, to be able to speak with those authoritative words and, and cast out demons in this way like that. That's what it is, and I don't know if it's, you know, it's probably not flashy, like movies have it, but... Um, but there's some weird stuff they encounter, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, you're, for sure. you're working with um, literally against the devil. What One thing I would say is always important to keep in mind is like, okay, I've I've not delved particularly deep into this subject, and I think that's a healthy thing, Um because you can get a morbid curiosity of the occult and all right. this stuff. But um, everything I've heard from from exorcists or people um, who have done stuff like that is like the sacraments are a billion times more powerful than the rite of exorcism. Rite of exorcism is a tool that's useful, like a medicine in this specific circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's trying to uh, achieve a certain inner freedom Um to be able to pursue a life of sanctity and holiness uh, uh, steeped in the sacraments and in regular uh, confession and um, mass attendance and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. and, and there's usually um, 
teams in dioceses. Some dioceses have, you know, some lay people are on the team, actually. There's always a priest, of course. But, and I don't know if this is official. Maybe you can shed some light. Um, I heard that every diocese has an official person as the kind of exorcist of the diocese, and they're never named publicly. Yeah, they're normally, well, because people have a, a fascination right. for stuff like this. And I think that's the reason to keep them anonymous is yep. like, look, if there's a real need, you contact the diocese and they'll figure out if yeah. your need is actually legitimate and then they'll they'll put you in touch yeah. with the person. But but like you don't need to, <laughs> to like dox the exorcist <laughs> to, you know, yeah. get his information out there and uh, have a whole bunch of people, some with good intentions, but uh, misled and others with bad intentions. Right. Um, and what um, to contact him, so. and what I've read too, uh, just a little bit in in the studies I've done and heard is really the exorcist is coming in to say, you know, what the catechism talks about. Like, are we actually talking about you know, um, you know, complete, um, like, are we talking about oppression? Are we talking right. about obsession? Are we mm-hmm. talking about like a full, you know, like? Yeah, the other word that the I can't think of either. The other word that I'm blanking on. Um, possession. Possession, thank you. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> it's an Eschen. It's I, an Eschen. I, I knew that you were looking for me. So I was like, come right on, help me, just, come, help me out. Help me out. Just going to let yeah, you sit so, there. No, but the catechism talks about that because we yeah. all open ourselves up to a certain amount of, um, you know, uh, obsession with certain things of sin and different things like that. And then we can also open ourselves to a certain amount with oppression of being like, well, when we enter in towards more sin, right? And then, you know, obviously it doesn't just go boom, 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 you know, quick and then possession. But that's what they're really evaluating. And the only the only thing I've also heard is, yeah, nine times out of ten, when they go visit someone or that, it is not it's serious, but it's not actually like we're not talking about full possession. Yeah. Um that's what I've heard too. Yeah. Um, so We'll leave it at that. Um, next, Landon, how do we? Perfect. This is about the Bible for the Bible guy. Bring it. <laughs> Landon, Ready. how do we know the Bible is not fiction and is a reliable source? Okay. Um. Well, <laughs> so the Bible is a library of books. So when some are fictional, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but. But that's the first thing is, is like the Bible has only been a book bound in a cover for, let's say, 500 years because that's when the printing press was <laughs> invented. Um, and before that, it was a codex. Um, before that, it was a bunch of scrolls. The Bible is you know, 72, 73. Oh, gosh, I'm the Bible guy. I'm supposed to Are know you that. kidding me? I always get this confused. It's 73. Um <laughs> I'm in shock right now. I always get it confused. You have like a doctorate in Bible stuff, sort pretty of. much. Yeah, yeah, not really yeah, a doctorate, yeah. but close. Know, a, a thing. A thing. Did you a just license. really question if there are 73 books in the Bible? <laughs> I oh, 72 is such a nice number, though. Yeah, I always think about it though as like Apostles. six. 66 is without the seven catholic books uh-huh. and that's why i'm like 66 is always a danger number you know getting <laughs> close to and so i'm like yeah plus seven that's how yeah. i always remember um <laughs> go ahead okay so you got all these books um and they're written across a 
very massive stretch of history. Um, it's easiest to start with the Gospels and say, are the Gospels historical? And uh, there are many, many different reasons to say yes. Uh, one reason is that they claim to be eyewitness testimony. Um, and the four different Gospels, which all claim to be eyewitness testimony, agree in massive uh, sweep of the details, and there's minor disagreements. That's one. Secondly, the, uh, the manuscript tradition um, of these events is uh, quite interesting. So the New Testament writings in general and the letters of Paul and the Gospels in particular, like you have a massive amount of uh, sort of minor variations in spelling and uh, syntax and sometimes synonyms and different words and stuff uh, in this manuscript tradition, but they all essentially tell the same the same story, which I think is very important that that the uh, the manuscript tradition itself points back and and agrees substantially that you know these are the things that are happening. Um, we have other gospels which the church early on said, nope, these are not uh, they don't reflect our faith. Um, and normally it was because they started to sound, like fiction and say weird, weird things under the influence of Gnosticism and other stuff. So, uh, you have that, um, you have other, <laughs> you feel, I feel like I see in your face, just, you are so overwhelmed right now by this question. Not over. It's, it's just so no, deep. It's, it's, it's not good, easy. It's a to, common question. I just want to do it, right. do it justice in this forum. Um, so you also have, uh, like the, the question, okay. Um, did Jesus exist? And you have uh, plenty of non-biblical uh, references um, to this guy named Jesus. Uh, Josephus, um, who is an ancient historian, who is contemporary with Christ, um, writes about, mentions him. He, he wrote histories like a, something called the Jewish Wars and the Jewish Antiquities, these two very important historical books. So you have Josephus on the one hand. You have Suetonius also mentions a certain Crestus, um, which uh, the way you pronounce things, it's the same. Um, Tacitus also. I'm working kind of off the top of my head. So you have these Greco-Roman historians who say this was a thing. There was this guy. They don't believe that he was the Messiah, but they say, here's this guy, and he had these followers. You have the testimony of his followers who uh, both write this stuff down and say, we are eyewitnesses to this, and who give their life um, as martyrs uh, in testimony to the truth of these events. Um, they have nothing to gain by giving their life in this way. They're not furthering a political cause. They're not becoming martyrs for this political thing. Like they're martyrs, you know, in testimony to someone who was crucified as a criminal rising from the dead. Like if it's not real, who cares? 
Right. Why would you give your life for it? St. Paul says, if this is not real, our faith is in vain. All of it's in vain. What are we doing here? Yeah. Um, so you have their witness. Uh, you have the extra biblical witness to uh, the reality of this person, Jesus. Um, you have the internal evidence, uh, which is just, does this thing seem like it's a trustworthy account that I'm reading? Does it seem realistic or not? Um, so that's all for the gospels and stuff. Um, I don't know. The old Testament is a much bigger question <laughs> because it's like, it's, it's written across a, a very large breadth of time and, um, undergoes multiple revisions. And so sometimes you're looking for like historical kernels. Does this match up with like what we know from archeology? span Um, other times, uh, it presents itself as very historical, like in the books of Kings um, and the books of Samuel, like the, especially in the books of Kings, they'll make reference to archival sources that they're using. And mm-hmm. so to say this is fiction is to say, um, I think that they are lying to me, um, which is, that's a big claim. And you have to have evidence to make a claim like that. Um, yeah. So uh, what would and, you say? Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. And other books are, are written in a way which is which is not uh, presenting itself as like a history. And then this happened, and then this happened, then this happened. But more as a collection of uh, poetry or of wisdom sayings, like the book right. of Proverbs, for instance, um, book of Psalms. Like, So there's a wide variety of literature in the library of books that is the Bible. Um, But normally when people ask that question, they're talking about the Gospels. And the Gospels are historical. There are many, many good reasons for thinking so. Mm -hmm. And it's only uh, sort of the secular (laughs) um, atheism of uh, our culture and like the History Channel <laughs> in particular, <laughs> which will trot out something trying to, you know, scandalize Christians and say like, none of this happened or this wasn't real or something. And they trot the same thing every year around Easter um, and around <laughs> Christmas. And like the Gospel just, of Judas thing. Yeah, and, and stuff it's just like they're that, making yeah. garbage claims. Like they're not making good claims. Yeah. Um, so... I don't know. That's a long nice. answer to a short question, but it's a good question. Yeah, and I think it can go in a lot of There's ways. A, I hear people say, can, like... Can book, I give a follow-up yeah, book, yeah, book recommendation? Uh, the Case for Jesus by Brant Petrie. Short little book. Very well done. Good very, research. Very uh, says good book. Says things that you don't hear just in sort of the common answers to this, and I, I think it's great. The Case yeah. for Jesus, Brant Petrie. We had to read that in one of my classes. I don't know which one, really? but yeah, I, I, I've read it. So um, You've read a surprising amount of books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really sure how to take that comment, so we'll just move on. No, the one point I wanted to say was I think a lot of people struggle, not so much even believing, was that story true or not? Just, okay, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but, you know, how do I really trust that the right books were put in <laughs> and not, you know, like I think, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah, we, I love that quote from, I believe, I know it's in the catechism. I don't know what original doc document it's from, but we venerate 
the word of God in the same way we venerate the body of Christ, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, sacrosanctum concilium from Vatican two. And yeah, it's and so, definitely in the catechism. I mean, I think it's just a struggle for people to be like, this is so important. I hear it's important. Did they, you know, did everybody have their ducks in a row when they put it together? You well, know? the whole so, thing just, I guess, uh, sort of rebuttal a- appendix to this, but, like the whole thing is apostolic tradition. Yep. Like they were eyewitnesses and then they hand it down to their successors who are the bishops and then they hand it down and it's the whole life of the church that they're handing yeah. down, uh, which includes the books that you use in the liturgy, um, which like that's really the main criterion for the early church determining which, which books of the new Testament are scriptural and which are not right. um, is these are the ones we've been using in the liturgy. Cause these are the ones that reflect our faith. Uh, that other one, not so sure. Let's look closer. No, definitely not. Or uh, yeah, actually it is. Yeah. Um, but it starts with, with the use in the liturgy, which is something that the church receives through this tradition. Tradition means handing down yep. traditio tradere in Latin. Um, What's the Greek word? I don't remember. Uh, yeah. I didn't read that in a book. Yeah, para something. Uh, paradidomy? Anyway. Um, <laughs> I think that's right. Paradidomy? Yeah, okay. I'm embarrassing myself here. Um, so, yeah. We believe it. Um, yeah. And, and we believe that it's this and not another. Mm-hmm. Um because of the apostolic tradition uh, good stuff that this comes from the apostles okay through their successors <laughs> i want this question to be last but not least because um i know some of you listen to our other uh t- wednesday edition of the podcast which is mm. more just topics um we've gotten this question a lot just in general and wanted to be able to address it but in case you've already heard it we wanted to be the last one um in case you don't want to listen to the answer again. And that is the question we've been getting a lot is as a faithful Catholic, I'm very concerned about the COVID-19 vaccine and its use aborted fetus back from the 1960. We'll explain all that, but um, is it moral to take this vaccine? Yeah. Um, So short answer is yes. And the church has spoken definitively that yes, it is moral to take it. Um, and says that uh, it can't even be uh, for the common good that one takes it, but you're also not required to take it if it goes against your conscience. Um, And it says, yes, it is moral, and in a document from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, otherwise known as the CDF, um, they explain their reasoning, and it's good reasoning. Uh, A key paragraph the fundamental reason for considering the use of these vaccines morally licit is the kind of cooperation in evil in the procured abortion from which these cell lines originate is on the part of those making use of the resulting vaccines remote. That's a long sentence, but basically it's saying like there is some cooperation in evil here, right? Um, but it is a passive, um, so not an active, uh, material as opposed to formal um, 
and remote as opposed to proximate cooperation. Um, and mm-hmm. that kind of cooperation, um, when there is a grave reason uh, for doing the thing, does not prevent us from doing the thing. So yep. that's their basic reasoning. And it's good. I've, I'm no, you know, vaccine developer. <laughs> um, never been accused of that. Uh, nope. But I did a little reading on like the science of it and like mm. the way even those, those cell lines are used uh, is not such that, that like you are receiving into your body somehow through this vaccine something directly related yeah. to um, an abortion in to an abortion in 1960. Yeah. That's yeah. not the way that that cell line was used in this. Yep. Uh, otherwise, it would be formal cooperation, right? Right. Um, so that's that's kind of the main point. Um, you can read the rest of it. There's also summaries of it. Uh, you just yeah. search for you know vaccine, Vatican, CDF. Uh, Pope Francis and Pope Benedict also got it, um, which so I think that. is important for people yeah. to know. There's that. Um, the church seems to be very clear and I think has given uh, good reasoning in this CDF document as to why the vaccine is licit to take. Yeah. Um, yeah. There you go. Hey, those are some great questions. We're, yeah. we're good at our job. <laughs> you know that? Um, so, hey, yeah. we want your questions. We want more of them. Um, Prodigal and the priest at gmail.com or stanandparish.org slash PTP. We love you so much and thank you for your support of the show and all we do. We missed you. Happy to go into 2021 with some more questions. On behalf of Joey Scansella, Father Paul Bechter, we say take care. God bless. <laughs>